Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another Stabby Snippet here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am joined with my ghoul friend Jessica. Wingapo. Wingapo. Today, I am going to be talking about the Holly Bobo case. But before we get into that, if you missed it on social media, we are having another live event in honor of Krampus Day. This one is going to be a little different, a little bit more laid back. Our admission for it, we just have one ticket. It'll just be five bucks. It's the same as last time. So if you go to the link in our bio on socials or our link tree in the show notes, it will take you to the little buttons and you'll see one for this event. This time we're going to do kind of like, you know, how you have like holiday parties with your friends and shit. That's what we're doing. It's going to be a fun virtual event just to hang out and have some holiday cheer on the greatest day of the year because it's Krampus Day. Yes. So we're going to be wearing Christmas ugly sweaters. You guys are more than encouraged to. Maybe there might be some prizes. You never know. But we are going to have some fun stuff planned for that. If you would like to check it out, head to the link tree and that'll take you to that. Or if you like to check out our website, it's on there too. It's pretty much everywhere. Hashtag facts. Oh, and also sorry for everybody I scared with the demon case I covered. I won't say the name because I think Lindsay might die. So... (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize it was actually going to scare anybody. And PSA, I didn't even realize it actually scared Jessica as much as it did when we were recording, (laughs) but we were talking about it before this. And she was like, no, it scared the fuck out of me. (laughs) Because like in real time, we record late at night. Right now it's 1030. And I'm like listening to the story and my husband is being loud in the front room. I was telling Tara, I prayed. I made like a joke of it on the podcast, but literally I was like, God. I haven't asked a lot this year, like, just don't catch COVID. And now I'd like to add to that list of please don't let a demon attack me. That's like (laughs) the only things I'm asking for. There's no world peace. There's none of that. (laughs) I'm not, you know, praying for anything else. Just don't catch the COVID and do not have a demon attach itself to me. Basic things. And then the next night we have the watch part, the monthly watch party, and we were watching a guest adventures and it's a demon one. And I'm like, oh, these are signs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. But yeah, so sorry, y'all. Sorry. I honestly, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too desensitized at this point, but I'm sorry. Anyways, so like I said, we are going to dive into the Holly Bobo case today. I got this requested a lot to me via TikTok. So you listeners who are from TikTok, 
Hello. But it's one I'm surprised we haven't talked about yet because um, it's very frustrating and it makes me very sad for her family. So Holly Bobo was born on October 12th of 1990. She was a nursing student after high school at the University of Tennessee at Martin Parsons Center there in Parsons. While in college, she was 20 years old at the time of this event. She lived with her parents, Karen and Dana, and her older brother, Clint, and they were located in Darden, Tennessee, which is a small, small town, and you'll see that theme of small town as we go through this. She was a, quote, mama's girl. She was really close with her mom. They had a really good relationship, even as she was entering adulthood. She was also described as shy but very sweet by her friends and other people that knew her. She did have a boyfriend, and his name was Drew, and things were actually going really well with their relationship. A couple months before her kidnapping and death, she had actually gotten a promise ring from Drew, and she was, like, super excited about it, and they were planning their future together and, you know, all of that kind of positive stuff. But on the morning of April 13th, 2011, when Holly was, as I stated, 20 years old, it started out like any other morning. She woke up really early at 4.30, and she had done that because she was trying to get in some extra studying for an exam she had that day. Dana got up and spoke with Holly for a few minutes. He left for work by 5.30, and after this is when her mom, Karen, woke up, and she would start to get ready for work herself. She said she made Holly breakfast and then she made herself lunch to take to work and she left the house by 7 a.m. Karen also noted that Holly was already ready for the day at this point. She was dressed. She was just sitting at the table getting ready for her test later. And at 7 a.m., she also spoke with one of her classmates named Hannah and they were just talking about the test. After this, Holly would get a call about 30 minutes later, so at 7.30 from her boyfriend, Drew. Now, this morning, Drew was out turkey hunting on her grandma's property. And a different relative of theirs saw him hunting, but didn't recognize him. So in these rural areas, sometimes people try to sneak onto properties they know that have good game and stuff. So he, they were being like, eh, wait, who are you? <laughs> kind of thing. But that ended up getting cleared up because Drew called Holly and then also Karen. And then they talked to the relatives and got it all sorted out. And that was all good. And Clint was there as well, her older brother. He was 25 at this point, And he was sleeping in. So he just he wasn't awake yet. And then at approximately 740, a neighbor named James Barnes said he heard screaming from the Bobo property. He said he heard Holly's voice saying, quote, stop, stop it. And that's something to pocket as we get into things with her brother, Clint. And James told his mom, because I'm assuming she lives with him, that kind of thing. And the mom called Karen. But Karen works at a school. She's a teacher. So the message was left for her. She didn't get the call right away type of thing. And she wanted to call and tell her, like, you know, give a heads up because, you know, it's a small town type of thing. And they're like, there's shit going down at your house before eight o'clock in the morning. And it was said that at this time, Clint did wake up, but it wasn't because of the yelling, like I just said. It was actually, he said, because of the dogs barking. So according to Clint, he peeped out the window and said that he saw Holly's car and thought it was weird that she hadn't left for school yet because, like I said, her test was at 8 a.m. So he tried calling his mom, Karen, to see if Holly got a ride to school or what was going on, but she didn't answer. And then Clint says that he saw when he peeped out, he saw two silhouettes and he heard the talking and he recognized Holly's voice and heard what he thought was Drew's voice. 
He said that he saw them in what looked like a serious conversation slash argument. He said, quote, Holly sounded very upset and heated. He was doing much of the talking, referring to the other dude, and she would answer back and things like that. I couldn't make out hardly any of the words, end quote. But then he says that he heard Holly say, no, why? And at this point, Karen's called him back and he's telling her like what he's seeing and what what's the deal with that kind of thing. Like, oh, OK. And he thought they were like breaking up or having some kind of little tiff type of situation. And then he saw them walk into the woods because they live in a rural area. And like I said, 10 minutes prior to this, Karen and Holly were on the phone dealing with Drew being at the grandma's property, which there was no way, no way possible for him to get from there to their house in that time. So she says to Clint, oh my God, Clint, that's not Drew. Get a gun and shoot him. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it because like my parents would have been like, get a gun and shoot it, not shoot it at him. Get a gun and shoot it so that the individual would startle and run. Yeah. And then Clint had said, you want me to shoot Drew? And then she says again, that's not Drew. And the reason why he said he thought this was Drew was because he was a dude in Mossy Oak camo. He also described the male figure to have dark hair, kind of a little bit longer, and then he estimated his height to be 5'10 to 6 foot and roughly 180 to 200 pounds. Got it. So Karen said to him, call 911 because this is not Drew. Like, someone's taking Holly into the fucking woods, like figure out what the fuck's happening. But he had said that he didn't want to call 911 over a breakup. So basically she got off the phone with Clint and she called 911, but she works in a different county than where their house is located. So she panicked and then hung up on that first attempt to call 911, which I mean, if if you're scatterbrained, I totally get that. At this point, Karen called Clint back and was like, no, that's not Drew. You need to call 911. And then he said at this point, he loaded up his pistol and then he went through the garage to go outside. And he said he noticed a pool of blood in the garage next to Holly's car. But he didn't think anything of it because he thought this was still Drew and that, you know, it was turkey blood. Okay, I just want to say one thing. Even if you're not in the same county, and it is rural, because Tara and I grew up in rural counties, you can still call 911 and give them the address. They can dispatch other counties. It happens. It might take them a little longer, but they can do it. Yeah. Well, she ended up recalling 911 and stuff because I listened to a clip and she was like, is this da-da-da county? And they're like, yes. And so she's like, okay, this is what's happening, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they take care of it and whatnot. And while he's out going to look for himself for Holly, he runs into that neighbor, the mom. They start talking about the yelling and everything. And then he's like, oh, maybe I should call 911. You fucking think? So... At 810, a deputy from Decatur County shows up, and according to phone records at 817 a.m., Holly's cell phone was moving away from her home and headed north to a wooded area near I-40. And with this case, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, or TBI, would get involved. There's a lot of backlash with how they conducted things with this case and how it all went. They apparently did not block things off at the crime scene, so neighbors and just basically whoever the fuck wanted to could go right on up and and through it and everything. And her mom even asked, like, can we stop this flow of traffic? And nope, they didn't do it. And then we also deal with some tunnel vision stuff, but we'll get into that later. But needless to say, Holly was nowhere to be found at this point. 
And on April 15th, so a few days later, law enforcement, they searched an area near Bible Hill Road and they found a lunchbox at this point and they thought it belonged to Holly. Because like I said, she was getting ready to leave or whatever when this dude showed up. So she had all her stuff. Then two days after that, a farmer found a paper with Holly's name, address and phone number on it. And actually, while canvassing and stuff, because her friends and everybody like they came together, they found her phone in a culvert. Also, the following day, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation held a press conference about Holly's disappearance, and it was noted that they were looking into 200 leads and testing evidence collected at this time. And then this day as well, the reward had jumped from 25K to 75K for Holly. And then the following month, a co-worker of Clint's said she was out on a bike ride with her brother and they actually found a SIM card that turned out to belong to Holly but we still have no Holly. Now, obviously, at first, they're going to look into Clint because he was the other known person on the property when she disappeared. And just because of the fact, how can a neighbor, and these houses are not on top of each other whatsoever, how can a neighbor hear the screaming, but supposedly you can't? Please tell me. But they, for some reason, ended up kind of pushing that aside and they didn't concentrate on him at all. They didn't do anything else with him. They're just like, okay, whatever. You're the brother. Bye. But they did turn to some other people who did fit the profile. They began taking a look at Zach Adams, and Zach doesn't, didn't, whichever, have the best reputation. He was known as a meth addict, drifter, and criminal. His arrest records include charges with domestic violence, assault, and drug possession. And he said he was with his girlfriend... Rebecca Earp at the time, and she would confirm this alibi. He then said that later on in the day that him and his brother Dylan drove to pick up their friend Shane Austin after 10 a.m. because he's got a couple different accounts, but his original one was he didn't wake up till 10 a.m. And then after that went and got this dude. Then they said they went to a gas station where they noticed a huge amount of police vehicles driving down the interstate. So authorities checked into surveillance tapes around the area and they found some footage from a pharmaceutical company and it showed a vehicle that was possibly Dylan's, the one they were supposed to be in, off Highway 641 in Parsons around 11 the same day. So it looks like maybe that was the thing, but I guess they couldn't confirm it. So I'm assuming they couldn't see the license plate, maybe because of the position. But this brings us to Agent Terry Dykus, and he was, like, in charge of this case, and he looked into Zach's phone records and saw that Zach could not have been involved in Holly's disappearance because at 8.28 a.m., his phone pinged at his house, which was several miles from Holly's. But according to Terry, Zach also took a polygraph and passed as well, which I'm just like, if he's a drug dealer or whatever, he could have left this fucking thing at home and had his burner phone on him or whatever, because we'll get into what they were doing later. But it's like, you know. Right. And if you like, I don't know, pay attention to anything since cell phones came about and they can trace them like you would know to leave your phone at home. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of crimes nowadays are solved because of pinging cell phones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was like that one you did in Colorado where they just they had all the dudes and his girlfriend's or mistress's pings. Yeah. So anyways, from here, their focus shifts to a man named Terry Britt. And this is not a good person either. So Terry is a registered sex offender and had been convicted of multiple rapes and lived in the same area as Holly. On top of that, Holly also fit the physical profile of his prior victims. So, makes sense they're going to look into him. 
Oh, my God. And when I was reading about him and about this, in multiple articles, it kept saying that the locals knew him as, quote, Chester the Molester. Like, dear God. Oh, God. Must we? Must we do this? Jesus. Not being like, feel bad for him or anything, because fuck no, he's a rapist. But I was just like, okay, small town, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And his alibi for that day was that he was out shopping for a bathtub with his wife. Later, investigators found out that his wife was actually at work that morning and Terry called her to come home early. And when, of course, authorities asked for evidence that they bought said bathtub, they gave them a handwritten receipt. But when they went to the store to check it, they had no record of them selling this bathtub to them. Oh, shit. Yeah. And then it's also noted that later when they kind of like checked his property and stuff, that cadaver dogs also had a hit on a shovel and a hammer on his property. But I mentioned tunnel vision. Agent Dykus was a little too tunnel vision-y with this dude, even as we go into the trial for who gets convicted for this. So they actually took him off the case because it got that bad that he wouldn't apparently look into anything else. Oh, shit. But with Terry, it's another case of he wasn't charged, as I kind of gave a little spoiler. But at the same time, they said he was never officially ruled out. So there's that. Now, when I talked about Zach, I mentioned his brother, Dylan. So unrelated to this case, he would actually be arrested in 2014 for weapon charges. However, however... I never have heard about this before. If you have, you can tell me. He was given a plea deal that he would be let out if he went and lived with a retired police officer. Hmm. And his name was Dennis Benjamin. I thought that was so odd. I've never read about that in my life. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> right? So ruled. I mean, I get this because it's like when I was when I was younger in the area we grew up in, like if kids were getting into trouble, but it wasn't serious, they would do like cop ride-alongs. But I've never heard of being like, hey, come live with this cop. That's an excessive side of that. Yeah, it was just strange to me. And Dylan was living there for about five weeks, and Dennis would end up calling 911. And the reason for that was Dylan said to him that he wanted to confess on what happened to Holly Bobo. Oh, shit. Yes. According to Dylan, he had been at Zach's house and he had seen Holly sitting in a chair wearing a pink shirt. And he said that Zach had been wearing camouflage shorts, a black cutoff shirt, and green Crocs that day. Dylan also mentioned their friend Jason Autry at the house and said that Zach told him to rape Holly and record it on his phone. And, of course, this led to authorities issuing a search warrant on Zach's house, and that was on February 28th of 2014. However, something to note, Dylan later recanted this confession and claimed he had been coerced with plenty of his family backing this up and saying all kinds of different things. And then they also mentioned that Dylan has, quote, the mental ability of a 10-year-old and an IQ in the low 70s. Aww. I know. Which could have, like, if you think about it, maybe that's why he got the plea deal. I don't know. It still doesn't make sense to me. I could see that where they would, like, want to be a little easier on him and but have someone keep an eye on him. Yeah. I just feel like it would have been like house arrest where he goes to a family member's house. I don't know. Well, I mean, if his brother is a drug dealer. Their parents are alive. So I don't know. 
I don't know their character, so I can't say. So Right. But yeah, like knowing that fact, that kind of makes sense. But still, I had never heard of that before. So then on March 5th of 2014, Holly's body has still not been found. But Zach was indicted for aggravated kidnapping and first degree murder of her. A little over a month later, so on April 29th, Jason Autry was also indicted on the same charges. But then if we don't have enough people already, we have another one. There was someone who came forward with some information that May. Her name was Sandra, and she said that a person named Jeffrey Perchy, I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, it looks like it, showed her a video of Holly tied up and crying. And she said she didn't watch the whole thing, but she definitely was inclined to believe it was of her assault. Jeffrey says he got the video from his brother, Mark, who was friends with Zach and all of them. And according to Sandra, she said she called Jeffrey and said, quote, that video of Holly, if it had been you, I would have watched it, end quote. And he replied, I know. How fucking disgusting is that? I don't like it. It's gross. I don't either. But of course, you know, Jeffrey has something to say about this. And he said he couldn't even hear what Sandra was saying because when they were on the phone, he was driving and had the windows down. So he just like said, I know. okay, generic answers to her. It's like, wow. okay." And then he also said that he believed that Sandra King was mistaken. And what she saw was a sex tape with Mark and his ex-wife, who's also named Holly. And of course, you know, prosecutors collected the phones of Mark and Jeffrey to try to find this. Well, flash forward to September 7th, 2014. We are now over three years since she was taken into the woods that April morning. And a couple people were out ginseng hunting. Made me think of the Bob's Burgers episode where him and fucking what's his butt go mushroom hunting. (laughs) (laughs) Him and Gene. Him and Gene, yeah. Anyway, these people were out ginseng hunting over by the cell phone tower next to I-40. It was like a super wooded area in northern Decatur County, which is about 20 miles from Darden, where the family house is. And when they were doing their thing, they found a bucket. And inside the bucket was Holly's car keys, makeup, inhaler, and a small bag with pens. On top of that... They also came across her skull and it had a gunshot wound in the back and also displayed fractures along the left cheekbone where once they, you know, the medical examiner took a look at it, it was where the bullet exited. Along with that, when authorities came out and canvassed the area, they would also find some of her teeth, several of her ribs, and one of her shoulder blades. That same month, Dylan was arrested Now, for some reason, this took for fucking ever. So we have a few years before this goes to trial, but there's some key things that happened in between then that I wanted to tell you guys about. So one is that on October of 2014, the charges they had against Jeffrey and Mark, the ones with the phones, they were dropped. Their charges were for accessory after the fact and tampering with evidence, but they dropped them because they could not find this video. They had no proof that they had anything to do with any of this. So that happened. And I mentioned briefly that there was a friend named Shane Austin with them that day with Zach and Dylan that morning. He had been charged but not indicted. And with him, they were actually going to give him immunity if he told them where Holly's remains were, because this is like flashback to before finding her for this offer. And he signed 
an agreement and everything. So like this, the agreement that he signed was back in March. So quite a few months before they found her in September. But apparently, because he couldn't give any like actual details, shortly after that, they sent him an email being like, no, we're done. This is not happening. So they took that off the table. And the reason I bring him up here instead of earlier is because in February of 2015, he had actually committed suicide in Florida at a hotel. So here we are with more unanswered questions as far as Holly's case goes. Then in 2016, the murder weapon or alleged murder weapon kind of came into their hands, came into authorities' hands. And it was a 32 caliber revolver. Later in court, they were talking about the fracture with the skull, with the gunshot wound and all of that. And here's some more like, here's some evidence, but we don't know type of shit. They said, quote, anything of a 36 caliber or smaller would have caused that defect. So it would be consistent with the 32 causing that defect. And they're like, well, can you prove it? And they're like, well, no, but it does fit because da da da. So it's, it's a fucking mess. Trial's a fucking mess. But where this gun came from? Because the gun fairy didn't drop it off. <laughs> <laughs> Another person, sorry again, guys, a man named Victor Dinsmore said that Shane, the one who had taken his life, had traded the gun with him for 12 morphine pills back in 2011. Victor then gave the gun to his wife for protection, but later was having some internal conflict about it because the gun had, quote, a body on it, end quote. So he dumped it into a creek. So then he waited, like I said, five years to tell the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation that this gun existed. If you purchase a gun from someone not the right way and you think it's a bad gun, turn it to the police, Mm -hmm. somebody. I mean, at least he went out with them and helped them find it. So I guess there's that. Yeah, but if it's been in a creek for five years. Right. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like, how much is it actually going to be helpful, you know? And Victor was, you know, since he was with his crowd, he, no surprise, was not a great person either. And they checked into him, too, with this because he also had a prior rape conviction and he lived pretty close to where Holly's body was found. But he was given immunity later because they like to hand that out left and right, apparently. It seems like it. But that's not going to be the last one. We're going to have another immunity come up that I'm going to talk about. It's fine. So this went to court in 2017. And I mentioned this person earlier. His name was Jason Autry. Like I said, he was one of the friends. And he actually becomes the prosecution's star witness throughout this. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to talk about this whole scrutiny thing a little bit. One of the big things that comes up a lot when you research this or read about it is the judge and the jury and that whole dynamic. Obviously, in cases like this, well, any trial, you know, you want your jury to be unbiased and look at things critically so they can come up with a fair decision, right? Well, if you're from a small town or lived in one now, you know that uh, the court of public opinion just kind of runs rampant sometimes and can have a heavy influence on the outcome of stuff. So in the courtroom, there was noted to be a known history of, quote, bad blood between the prosecution and the defense and the judge. So I don't know. They didn't clarify if like the judge liked one and didn't like the other or what the fuck that deal was. I'm going to guess he was okay with the prosecution and didn't like the defendant or the defense. Just speculation there. They also have on recording the judge interacting with the jury and probably not the most appropriate manner. Not like nasty, but like shouldn't have been doing it. So there's footage of him talking to them about some upcoming football game that was going on type of thing. And it was said that he actually sent some jurors to it 
and he could point out certain members that he actually knew personally. Well, when you live in a small town, it's impossible. Well, right. But the thing is, because of the close relationships he had with them, people wonder if that had an influence on their decision making. Like, why didn't this get moved to a different county or something like that? Because it was such a small area. And when they had talked about it at first, they were going to move it to like the county right over. And they're like, no, like it's the same fucking people, basically. Right. We would need it further. And that didn't happen. I think a lot of a lot of times it's money because a murder trial is expensive and you're asking another county to step up and take on that cost. And the other thing is, is that you're looking at in small rural areas, all those fucking judges know each other. I mean, at this point, they would have to do something like go to like a major city nearby. Yeah. But, you know, for you and I, these aren't shocking things, but it's still problematic for sure. Because, like, when I was reading that, I had the same reaction. I was like, I'm not fucking surprised. Everybody fucking knows everybody kind of thing, you know, which is just not good sometimes. Living in a small town is like playing six degrees of Kevin Bacon. And it's not even six. It's like three. If that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) A lot of the footage from the trial you can watch on YouTube. I watched quite a bit of it. And it's just it's just so heartbreaking, especially watching Karen, her mom, get up there. It's just like it just pulls at you a lot. And there was one point where they're about to bring out the Holly's belongings that they found. And Karen had not seen them ever. This was going to be the first time. And while they're talking, she ends up actually passing out. And the defense wanted to automatically deem it as a mistrial because this happened because they're like, how can anyone be objective after seeing that? Which, fair point, I get what they're trying to say. But if you watch it, you'll understand, like, that's not the vibe I got. It was just like, she's probably overwhelmed. Like, obviously, her kid's been murdered. But the judge ended up denying that and saying, you know, it was a true medical event, that it wasn't anything predicted. It it was just random. And she wasn't doing it for sympathy. Now, Holly's dad gets on the stand as well, of course. And they talk about how the care of the crime scene and all that was not too great. And he felt like the TBI was not really doing very much at first. Basically, he felt like everybody was just kind of standing around and not doing anything. So he went out and they were like, well, what are you doing? And he's like, well, if you're not going to go look for my kid, I'm going to go look for her, which proper response. Right. And it's just interesting if you think about it. Supposedly, they did these canvases and stuff. Granted, yes, it was 20 miles away, but still, it took them forever to find her remains, find nothing. And in my head, when I'm reading that, at the same time, I'm like, I wonder if maybe her remains were dumped there after kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, because everything being in a bucket, someone knowing shit's in hot water. So it kind of seems like a drop for that stuff. Because I'm like, how convenient that something lasts for fucking years in a bucket and nobody's seen it before. Right. Because it's like right around this time that they're putting all the pressure on like Dylan and, you know, talking to all these other guys and then suddenly shit shows up. That's very sus. Yeah. But like I said, Jason Autry was like the star witness and he had so much to fucking say. So fucking much to say. Oh, Jason. Me paraphrasing it was not the best option to go or summarizing it. So I pulled up an article that has a lot of quotes and stuff that I'm going to go through with you guys from WMC Action News 5. Shout out to them. It's like the Lori Vallow case all over again with an awesome news station. (laughs) I know that one in Idaho were like, for the fucking win. Yeah, right. God. 
So on the morning of her disappearance, he said that he stayed the night at his girlfriend's house and that morning he got up at 6.30, had some coffee and got his girlfriend's car to be dropped off to his car, which was parked elsewhere. He said that he got in his car and drove to a refuge to look at wildlife to kill time before calling to buy drugs. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm thinking of like an area between me and our hometown right now, which is like a wildlife refuge. I'm gonna look at some bird. I'm gonna look at some geese. Insert thumbs twiddling here. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Anyways, he said at the time he had an addiction to morphine, meth, and hydrocodone. When he was on his search for drugs, he said he ended up calling Shane Austin and Zach Adams and eventually got a hold of Zach around 8.40 to 8.50 a.m. Initially, he was trying to brush him off and said he was busy and he'd call him back a little bit later, but he said he needed his help over at Shane's house. So that's where he went. He thought that Zach was going to need help with a batch of meth. 20 to 30 minutes after this conversation, he gets there, so roughly close to 930. And he says he noticed a few things when he got there. He said there was a fire burning in a burn barrel. Dylan was in the doorway shirtless and Zach in the yard with a firearm holstered on his side. And he said Zach was walking around the yard telling them to hurry up and to get out of this area. So Jason said he got his pill from Shane and he said he broke it in half and took it. And then he walked back over to where Zach was and he said that he needed help hiding a body. And Jason assumed that this was, you know, something about like a drug deal type of thing because they had been talking about something going south with this dude named Jojo. So he's like, oh, it's Jojo's body. Okay, that's fine. So confused. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm cool that it's Jojo's body. Yeah, no, it's fine. He then says that Zach told him, no, that's Holly Bobo. And he said that he had no idea who Holly was. He's just like, okay. And just didn't really give a shit that there was a body in the back of the truck and that, you know, he was going to go help him with it. He said that Holly was wrapped up in a blanket in the bed. He said he agreed to help him bury the body as long as he could get help to move his car. That is not a tit for tat thing. <laughs> like, I- I'll help dispose of your body if you will, you know, tow my car into town. No, not the same thing. (laughs) Right? And he also noted that Dylan never came out of the trailer. He wasn't out with them during this, but he said that Shane was putting things into the burn barrel. He said he didn't know what it was, but he said it smelled like a, quote, meth lab burning. I don't know what that smell is. I I don't either. I just think of, like, Breaking Bad. That's all I think of when I hear, like, meth. So... So they ended up moving his car and then he got into the truck with Zach. And he said that down the road when they were driving, apparently Jason was like, how are we going to do this? We don't have any shovels or pickaxes or tools to bury this body. And apparently he suggested taking her intestines out and putting her into the water where the turtles could eat her body. He said that they drove up to an area that he said he had been there before. It was on Birdsong Road near a boat dock. So they were also really close to I-40 Bridge. And then, you know, they're showing him, like, pictures of the location and stuff. And he's confirming, like, yes, here, here, and here, that kind of thing. He also says that the two got out and grabbed her body when he noticed a small amount of blood on the truck and on the blanket. And Jason said he never looked inside or unwrapped it or messed with her too much. And then that's when they, you know, they placed the body down. And he said he was standing over her and he saw her legs moving and she made like a moan kind of sound like she was still alive. 
And then he says he told Zach, quote, this fucking bitch is still alive, end quote. Then he said this is when Zach grabbed his pistol out of the truck. And this is a direct quote. He said, I said, whoa, the fuck you think he's going to do? He's thought he's already killed her. Like, I'm just saying. Right. Like, he came there to gut her and float her down the river and whatnot. But you're shocked at a gun? Yeah. Oh, no. Don't shoot her in front of me, even though I just called her a bitch. Right. And the gutting was his suggestion, so okay. And then the next thing Jason says while he's there, he said it sounded like it had he had shot three or four times because it echoed under the bridge, but that it was in fact only one shot. And he said after this, he ended up hearing a boat because they're right there by the water. So he said, I took off running. And they were worried they had been seen or whatever and said that they grabbed her again and loaded back into the truck. They didn't just leave her. And they said they were at a federal refuge where there's no firearms allowed. And so they go back and stuff. And then he's, you know, questioning Zach, like, how did he know Holly and all of this? And he said he knew her cousin who worked at a strip club and they had hooked up and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the other thing is that I saw in a clip, too, was saying that the reason Zach was going over there and he was supposed to go with him was to show Clint how to manufacture meth, his direct words. So this is why I think Clint's not as innocent as they try to say. So obviously they want to make, you know, prove he's a credible witness. So they ask, why'd you lie about this? Like, why did you act like you had nothing to do with this when you you know all this shit? Because the other big thing too is like, he goes into more detail. Um, This will be on the sources page if you would like to read the whole thing. What he's saying does not match what Zach is saying. So that's also another thing. They're like, well, then why why are you telling all this now? That kind of thing. So he said he lied because of self-preservation, family preservation, and three, attempting to keep a relationship with his then-girlfriend. So they go on and on. Like, this goes on for forever that he's talking. And obviously, he's just part of one of the many witnesses they have because there's like 500 fucking people involved. But they also talked to Rebecca, the girlfriend that had Zach's alibi. And she ends up saying on the stand that she did lie as well. But it was because she said she was afraid of him. So she just went along with it for her own safety. And she said that he actually woke up and left the house around 6.30 that morning and said to her that he was going to go on a scrap run for Victor. The defense focused on the fact that Dylan was coerced. They focused on that a lot. And then they were saying that these men were all arrested without probable cause and that this town just had a witch hunt for these guys because they're not the best kind of guys type of thing. And that they needed to focus on Terry Britt because that's who it was and all of that. But the jury would not see it this way as on September 22nd, 2017, Zach was found guilty on all charges and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 50 years for the kidnap and rape convictions as well. Shortly after that, Dylan went to court too and he entered an Alford plea. Basically, as part of, if you don't know, part of his agreement, he pled guilty to the charges of facilitation of first degree murder and especially aggravated kidnapping. He was sentenced to 15 years years for the facilitation and then 35 years for the kidnapping, which he is serving those concurrently without parole. And that's basically saying, I'll say I'm guilty without saying what I did kind of thing. Right. And then jump to 2020 because here we fucking are. 
On February 27th, Zach's attorney tried to file an appeal, citing that 56 mistakes were supposedly made at the trial, including a biased judge and unfair jury. And this also was when they got into challenging because, you know, moving the trial from Decatur to Hardin County, which, like I said, those are next to each other, and that this wouldn't have made much difference. The defense also said that the judge allowed the prosecution to present surprise evidence that they didn't know about. And what I saw the most recent update was that they were still going to decide if these mistakes, quote, quote, were enough to deny him a fair trial. However, even if, like, the judge allowed the prosecution to have surprise evidence or surprise witnesses, a good defense attorney would call for a recess to be able to get the validity of it. And basically, what judge in their right mind wouldn't give them that opportunity? Because then it would be really a throwaway, like, mistrial. Like, if you don't do this, then I'm calling for a mistrial. Right. And then, like I said, Jason was given immunity, but that was, I guess, federally because originally they were actually looking at getting the death penalty, possibly. But with that, he did end up pleading guilty to solicitation to commit murder and of especially aggravated kidnapping. And he was given eight years. I'm sorry. Oh, you're going to get more mad. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what else. Oh, good. And then last month, just last month, so literally September 16th, he was released on time served. That's two fucking years. Yep. But it was said that the Bobo family, as terrible as this was and how frustrating this obviously is, they were thankful for his testimony because it was able to give them a lot of the answers to the questions they had about what happened and things like that. The one thing that they could never get a definitive answer on was like the actual motive, like why? What the fuck? You know? And like I said, I really do question Clint and what that was because when I was reading about this, there's theories like maybe it could have been like him and Zach had like some kind of drug thing that went bad and obviously they're just not talking about it because like at that point who knows if he's defeated or what and he's like I ain't gonna bring it up or just like they got into an argument and Holly you know what I'm saying like just the crossfire kind of thing because what's interesting too is the defense also brought this up Zach doesn't necessarily match the description that Clint gave so then it also makes me think would did Clint have anything to do with her murder maybe like I would hope not I would really hope not. That's his sister. Yeah, it's terrible, but it happens. Yeah, we've seen it happen. I mean, when drugs get involved with things and people become addicted to them, they don't exactly act in their right mind. And it sounds like these boys were just like, had some sort of like opioid and methamphetamine cocktail in their system all of the time that was making it rational that it was okay to commit murder. And I mean, we don't know, like, maybe you're right, like, Maybe what's his face? Maybe Clint did something against Zach, but Zach can't say, well, Clint did this because I can't really be like, well, if I say that I was there and Clint did me this way, then then I'm admitting guilt. But you would think at the same time that if that was true, that Clint would be like, no, this is what happened. I mean, because obviously in that county, they just fucking throw immunity at the wall like it's spaghetti and hope it sticks. I think it's absolutely fucking ridiculous that this Jason fellow is like out of prison and he 
You said he's the one who came up with the idea of gutting the girl and was totally okay with helping get rid of a body. My whole thought is, if he's willing to do that, correct me if I'm wrong, Tara, or if anyone else out there wants to Google it for me. But the whole point of like parole, going before a parole board, is to say, hey, I've learned my lesson. I will never do this again. And there's no way that these that that kid in this short amount of time learned his lesson enough. I mean, he learned if I speak, I can walk free. It, my mind is blown. It's a misjustice because who's to say he won't participate in something like this again? Mm-hmm. I agree. But to kind of end us on a positive note, something good did come out of this. On March 10th of this year, the Tennessee House and Senate approved for the Holly Bobo Act. And what this did was it raised the age limit for Amber Alerts there in Tennessee from 18 to 21. Oh, that's cool. Yes. Um, it did not change the activation criteria for Amber Alerts because that's federally funded. But at least it's going to help out because we've seen other cases where these kids are just above 18 mm-hmm. and, you know, they're missing. So it's just uh, this whole thing is just really heartbreaking. And honestly, it was kind of confusing. So it's like we don't really know what or who exactly happened. And it's just it's it's so devastating. And I feel so bad for her and her family. Like she was an RN student and just had so much life ahead of her. She was only 20 years old. Like, you know, it's just it's terrible. It's always so hard when you hear stories like that. And it's like someone who's putting their life in order and working hard and some person just decides that they're okay with killing them. I was having this discussion with someone about doing the podcast and stuff like that. And I was like, the one thing I just can't ever wrap my head around is people killing people. Because at the end of the day, like, I can't fathom killing another person. I mean, I understand how it works and the mechanics and how easy it could be. But I don't understand the what's going on in someone's brain to go, yep, this decision's okay. I mean, I like, and then I say this, but then it's like in the heat of the moment where I get where people get in fights and they feel like they have to protect themselves in self-defense. Like, that's like a different thing in my head. But like these predatory dickless assholes out there who are just like, I can just take your life and nothing should happen to me. Like, I, I can't get it. And it's just like, there was such a big group of people intertwined with this case. I'm just like, I don't get it. And then most of them are not even in jail. Right. So like two out of the seven or however many. And like one of them, if he's really that disabled, would have been very easy to manipulate. And you add in like a family bond Mm -hmm. where, I mean, we've seen that time and time again where a dominant personality and then a submissive person just comes along and it just does what they're told and a lot of times it's because you know I'm your like I'm your brother if you don't do this I'm gonna get in trouble and go away do you want me to go away and that person is like no I love you I want you here and I don't know it's like two crimes are committed yeah because you've affected this other person in such a negative way yeah But on that note, we are going to go ahead and wrap things up for today. Thank you guys for listening as always. If you guys have any suggestions, you can always DM them to us, email us, or we have a contact button on our link tree as well, and you can submit cases or paranormal topics there. But with that, we are going to sign off now, and we will see you on Monday for a regular episode. 
Bye, guys. Bye.